Guys, this is going to be a fun episode with Green River Guide Colby Crosland of Spinnerfall Guide Service. And we're going to talk about uh, fall fishing on the Green River. And he's also going to answer uh, some listeners' questions in regards to fly fishing. Guys, as you know, uh, we have recently, just in the last few days, lost a good friend of mine, Jason Harrison of Kuyu. Kuyu has been a sponsor of my podcast. And um, we are all in shock. We are all in disbelief. Jason was an amazing guy, an amazing friend. Uh, I went out to the funeral in Dixon, California, and it was just overwhelming to see the amount of people that showed up and the support that uh, those people were showing to Jason's family. And I appreciate all the support, all the messages that I've gotten on Instagram and on my email. And I just really thank the Kuyu Nation. Uh, I really like that hashtag Kuyu Strong. If you guys are Kuyu supporters, please use that. And uh, we're going to be uh, doing some tributes here to Jason and some of uh, my favorite uh, episodes, uh, podcast episodes with him uh, here over the coming days. So um, I appreciate all of the support. He was an amazing guy. And um it's, it's uh, going to be a, a huge loss for the hunting community, a uh, huge loss, obviously, for his family and friends, and uh, he will not be uh, forgotten, and uh, his legacy will live on. So, uh, guys, let's get right to this uh, podcast episode, and I look forward to sharing some future podcasts, uh, some some repeat episodes with Jason Harrison, and, and listening to the passion that he brought um, and uh, my condolences and prayers go out to his family. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have my friend Colby Crosland from Spinnerfall Guide Service out of Dutch John, Utah. Colby, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's uh, It's been a good season, and it's, it's happy as can be. That's good. I'll probably add to the listeners out there, uh, Colby is, a guide on the famed Green River in Utah, which is, uh, for people that don't know, it's, what, three-hour drive outside of Salt Lake City. It's probably 30 miles north of Vernal, Utah, and um, it's below the Flaming Gorge Reservoir, and it's a place that I love to get up a couple times a year and go fishing, and and, uh, it's always nice to see Colby. When I was there last, Colby, about three weeks ago, um, I got to see you uh, briefly. You had one day off and the whole month, it seemed like, and I <laughs> uh, got, got to see you, but you've been busy guiding, haven't you? Yeah, I have. It's been a, a really busy season for us. We've, we've had a lot of trips booked up this year, so it's been a good drive That's by year, so word gets around and, and they book out. That's great. You know, I think probably the last time we talked um, – we talked about the the transition, you know, not necessarily of the river, but just the transition of bugs and, you know, coming off of winter and then, you know, into the blueing olive season and, and um, you know, the, the betas and what have you. And then it transitions into summer, which I know is one of your favorite times with, you know, all the different hatches of, of bugs. And then even into late summer and in, into terrestrials, um, First, let's start off um, that cicada um, hatch this year. It's, it just seems like the last couple of years, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
Uh, but for sure this year, it just seemed like it never really got real widespread. Um, what was what was your um, experience and interpretation of that? Yeah, no, that was a, a, a great way to, to phrase it. It didn't get widespread. We had a couple weeks where there was enough bugs out there where fish were targeting cicadas, and we were throwing them, and it was it was fun, and kind of kept ramping up and ramping up, and we thought it was going to be another great year like we had in 13, but it just kind of tapered off, and we didn't quite see the the finish, the finale that we wanted. So yeah, everybody kind of has their theories. Some guys say it's every five years, three years, seven years, waiting on cycles. I think that it's just more about weather and conditions and if we can keep the beavers from eating all our box elders on the banks and so the cicadas have got a place to to kind of grow up and, and reproduce. How much of, um, you know, there's, there's, it's been said, I, I've heard numbers of 15, I've heard numbers of 20,000 fish per mile in the A section right below, right below the dam there. What is the accurate count or, you know, what would be the most accurate word of the count that you've heard in that A section fish per mile? So this year, our biologist has said that our fish count has gone down dramatically. We're probably in the, the 12,000 to 13,000 fish per mile on A, which for us is really low. Um, most rivers around the world, that's crazy high, but it's right. low for us. Um, it hasn't been a, a bad thing. Total numbers of fish are down as far as what we're catching, but fish quality has, in my opinion, more than made up for it. We're catching some really, really, really good fish, and especially on the A section this year. So yeah, you know, we're down. The quality's way up. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, MJ, uh, who, who, I think last year, maybe the year before, whenever we did the podcast where we were floating down live, I think it was last year. Um, MJ said, "Man, I think the fish numbers are down," and I was arguing with him. I said, "Oh, MJ, the fish numbers aren't down. They're just not. <laughs> they're just not on." And now I'm gonna have to go back and tell him, "You're right. The fish numbers are down." Yeah, um, they definitely So it are. goes to twelve or thirteen thousand per mile, kind of in those upper stretches of the A section. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it pushing eighteen, nineteen, twenty thousand at one point in time? And and what has what in your mind has caused you know, to lose, you know, five, six, seven thousand fish per mile. So one thing they've done is um, changed the stocking on the river. They've always planted rainbows on the river. They've done it in the past where they would take a raft or a boat down and kind of spread them throughout the river, which is probably a good thing. Um, the last few years, they've just been dumping them in at the ramps, and I think that a lot of those fish just end up as trout food that you dump 5,000 10-inch rainbows on the ramp, and I wouldn't be surprised if half of them end up being eaten by all the browns as opposed to kind of having them dispersed out and where they can find their own little hiding hole. I think when you get that many, there's just nothing they can do. And for whatever reason on the river, they don't disperse themselves. Our biologist says that when they stock them on the lake, the reservoir, that they'll do a survey or sample throughout the week, and there's stalkers everywhere that they've ran dozens of miles, but on the river, they kind of stay wherever they stock them. So that's got a lot to do with it. Um, in the last few years, we've seen a lot more people 
fishing the spawn up here, which is definitely a, a hot button issue. Some people, that's all they ever fish is a spawn. Um, I definitely think it has to hurt fish numbers. I don't see how it couldn't when you're you're abusing the the mating fish. So that's got part of it to do, but I mean it's a healthy river even with the numbers down. Yeah, probably sure. a healthier river. Yeah, one thing we did notice the last couple trips, um, the fish, you know, the browns especially, just seemed to be very healthy. Um, seemed to, you know, be big in size and just, um, you know, good, healthy, strong fish. So that was cool. Um, yeah, we don't see doubling, any ones anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, doubling back to that cicada where you talk about the hatch and it just never, you know, just fired where it was just going crazy. Um, it's kind of a finicky thing because it's very relative to dry conditions and heat right i mean if yeah. you get you get temperatures where you get a cold snap or something that comes in it can kind of really knock that down and does it just create where there's not as a big of a, an emergence where those um cicadas actually hatch that year i mean does it actually slow them i mean keep them from you know hatching you know that's that's another kind of thing that's a, a faded issue up here amongst the guides and um, a lot of people say that they're going to come no matter what, that their year to hatch is the year that they will hatch, and the weather doesn't dictate if it happens or not. Um, it definitely, when the good weather, what we consider the good weather happens, you see them come out quick and in big numbers. Um, I think that more importantly, it's the year that the cycle, how well they reproduced. So if it stays hot longer three years ago, then they get a really good number of eggs laid and larvae in the ground. And so that is more important, really, than the current year. It was the, the year that they they reproduced gotcha. to put that cycle back in. I think that's gotcha. where the big numbers happen. It's just if we get... So what happens to trigger it is we need it to warm up. We need moisture in the ground, get the ground soft, and then for it to get hot. Once it gets hot, they start emerging, and if it stays hot, they keep coming out, and they keep staying active. When it gets cold again, they just kind of mellow out, and they're not flying, they're not clicking, and I think they're probably not reproducing in the number, because when it's hot, you can just see them buzzing and flying and clicking, and they're just they're doing their thing. When it gets cold again, I just don't think they get as many successful meetings. Interesting stuff. As the summer, as so that's in usually the first couple of weeks of you know maybe the last few days of May and the first couple of weeks of June. Exactly. And then, as summer progresses, then you move into you know what I would call the more traditional hatches that people are more familiar with, with you know your different bugs of yellow sallies and PMDs and a lot of the summer quote unquote summer bugs. Um, how what how was the summer dry fly fishing with those other bugs, uh, in your opinion, compared to other years? You know, was it was it status quo normal or was it better? Or where where do you see that? I would say it was probably status quo normal. It seemed a little light because last year the caddis were so just off the charts. 
I mean, it was as good as it got last summer with the Caddis and Sally's. So this year it seemed a little light, but I think that was just all relative perspective. I'm pretty sure it was was a, a great number for the bugs, and it was really cool seeing all the big fish up on them this year. That was that was kind of a new one, was seeing really big fish eating all the Caddis and Sally's. And, um, I didn't really target the PMDs this year for whatever reason. I don't know if it was just the Caddis were, were thick enough, long enough, that the PMD wasn't really even a, a hatch that you needed to fall back to. I would love them right now, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. And, and then as it, you know, into August, as it kind of transitions again into more of a terrestrial, you know, crickets, ants, mm-hmm. grasshoppers, you know, trichos, um, obviously those are, you've got terrestrials and then you've got trichos, which are, you know, size 22, 24, and then you've got the, you know, grasshoppers and, and the ants yeah. and stuff that are big flies. Talk about kind of the August fishing and, and some of the challenges that, that you face as a guide as well as, you know, some of the, the I, I guess not challenges, but some of the, the positives that you look at. Through kind of the, the dog days of summer, the August and 1st of September, the, the main challenge is it's just so spotty. You'll have one day where you just crush it. Fish are up everywhere, eating everything you throw, and then next day you can't find one. And it's, it's frustrating as a guide because there's nothing you can really put your finger on to say this is what needs to happen to make a better day. It's just every now and then you have the, the day where the fish aren't looking up, whether it's barometric pressure or got too cold the night before so there wasn't the hoppers out in the morning. Who really knows? But the nice thing this time of year is you usually can just keep throwing a hopper and find some fish, and if you have a dropper on there when the trichos and the pseudos start emerging, you're going to find some fish that are willing to eat the dropper. And right now, just a, a little size 20 pheasant tail gets it done so as a dropper as your dropper yeah so a lot of guys will run a a pheasant tail um behind a bigger pheasant tail or frenchie so you do your hopper down a couple feet to a frenchie or a big bead head fly to get your weight and you have your swimmer a couple for a foot or so behind that is a, a second dropper Gotcha. A lot of the YO guys will be confused with that. We're, we're running three flies, but Utah and Colorado, you can do the three-fly rig. I, I tend to avoid the droppers if I can, but there's a lot of people out throwing them right now. Yeah. Um, when I was there fishing, I took my buddy Monty, and we were floating, and, and um, Monty's wife went with us, and uh, we were fishing actually a big tan Chernobyl ant, and... Um, it was fun because, you know, it's it's like you fish. It's he was like it's it's the land of a thousand casts because you cast and cast and cast, and then you get you know a, a handful of good eats during the day where you know they follow it, follow it, follow it, maybe yeah. turn, follow it, and then they eat it, and you know the whole boat goes crazy. Um, one thing I I. I'm curious to get some input from a guide's perspective. Um, when you're fishing hoppers, you know, normally around here in Colorado and stuff, I'm fishing, you know, right on the bank, you know, I'm up in the brush and, and all of that. But I noticed that we actually 
um, caught some fish on the hopper, you know, just kind of out, you know, what I would call kind of no man's land, you know, finding that current of, of, of water sometimes in those back eddies and what have you, but just like out in the middle of nowhere and fish were there and looking up, how do you fish a hopper as a guide? Um, you know, it's everybody beating the banks and that's why those fish are kind of more out in those, you know, seam lines or, you know, out, out in that no man's land. So one thing that I kind of try to describe to my clients is, and this river has a lot of traffic. There's a lot of anglers and a lot of skilled anglers. And so that kind of lane down the bank from a foot off the bank to about five feet off sees a ton of flies. So those fish are very, very educated. They've seen it all. So if you've got any drag or anything's not right, those fish are going to realize it. So you either need to be inches from the bank or right out in the middle, just finding fish that aren't as heavily pressured. That's the one thing I have a lot of clients say, like, that was the perfect scene. Like, it was, if I had designed the river, I would have had that, and there would have been a fish there. And the problem is, when you're floating, every other boat sees that perfect seam and that perfect drop. So there may have been 15 perfect drifts that went down that little, I mean, just textbook scene in front of you. So if it was going to happen, it probably happened before you got there. So I think that's why those out-in-the-middle, random, no-man-land spots work. There's so many fish in the river that there, there's almost fish everywhere. So if it's in good flowing water where it's decent habitat, you're going to go over a fish and find one that hasn't been poked that day already. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. One question I would have is, you know how when you fish kind of small streams and stuff, um, let's say places that maybe don't get a lot of pressure and you fish a terrestrial, you fish a hopper, you fish a, you know, Chernobyl ant, you fish some sort of, you know, cricket or something, you know how it's almost like every good looking spot that you hit, there's a fish there. Mm -hmm. it, if the green, let's just say, let's just say you could uh, uh, be the, you know, the, the leader of the world, so to speak, and shut down the Green <laughs> River for two weeks. I mean, if those fish did not see, you know, boat after boat and fly after fly for two weeks or whatever the time period would be, would it just be literally unbelievable in your mind? Um, I mean, and how long would they need where, you know, literally every good spot down a bank on, say, the A section or the B section would just be just, I mean, one eat after another. I mean, is is that even worth even dreaming about? <laughs> I mean, obviously, I know you can't shut the river down, but I, I always wonder that, like, a, a river with so many fish mm -hmm. and they see so many bugs, but if, if they did get unpressured for a while, would it just be, I mean, a 100 fish day? Where, you know, like when you go to a small yeah. creek and every single good spot you hit, you get a rise, you know, you get a fish hit in the, hit in the terrestrial. No, it's funny. That's a discussion that we have up here all the time, sitting around drinking beers and play the, the what-if game. I think it would take a lot longer than two weeks for the, okay. the river to come back into a unpressured habitat. I mean, it's kind of yeah. like saying the same thing with deer. If you're going to be yeah. out in, in an area you know there's huge deer, how many years of no pressure would it take for those deer to be stupid, like city deer? 
think it would yeah, take just a lot stand out and open. actually think that it would. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we, we have that discussion all the time, and I would love to know how big some of these fish would get to if they weren't pressured. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, another thing. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing you think about, you know, because they're having to, quote-unquote, defend themselves or, you know, head down in deeper water or what have you, and they can't sit out in those shallows and just suck down grasshopper after grasshopper. And if they do, they get caught, and they kind of realize that, hey, I need to not do that. Um, you wonder how just they would just gorge themselves. Yeah. No, us fishing to fish makes them smaller just because they yeah. aren't eating as aggressively as they would. They're just yeah. let food go by. I mean, during cicadas, it's crazy. You'll see fish come up and refuse natural. They just get that <laughs> pressured that, that they won't even eat a natural. They'll come up and look at it and, and then run from it. But Your earlier when we were talking fishing. about just fish being as dumb as they can, we've had years at the cicadas where it is every spot you get an eat. I mean, if that cicada's out on the water, whatever fish it goes over eats it. When it's on and it's hot, it it happens. We get a couple days every couple years where where that kind of dream does come true. When, well, I got a couple questions here. When you're fishing, um, let's say you're you're hopper fishing on the Green River. In your experience, a complete dead drift with the hopper, is that going to get more eats or is a little bit of movement and skating it around and, you know, wiggling it, what, what, in your opinion, gets the most eats? I definitely like the twitch and the wiggle. and I mean, it can't be continuous because if you've got a fish looking at it, ready to eat it, and it twitches, a lot of times that will turn them off but you'll get that just involuntary instinctual eat a lot on the twitch where you give it a big man and that fly will move three or four inches and that's when you get that giant blow-up eat where you just have to hold on that the fish does all the work. And that rarely happens just on the dead drift. So it's definitely a time and a place. If I'm running down the banks and fishing tight, I prefer a perfect dead drift, but if you're out in the middle kind of over the, the light riffles and all of that, a, a twitch or skate goes a long way. So Have that you was one that yeah. Scott on the one fly, he did a lot of a lot of twitching. He was saying that he was fishing a hopper out in the middle just like you'd fish a mouse. Yeah. Really? Uh-huh. And is just he the guy that won the one fly? Yep, so Scotty and I uh, um, took the team this year. And uh, he was down on the B section, and they caught a lot of fish on that waking Chernobyl. He was fishing his, his Chernobyl pattern called a snooky. A snooky. I love it. Snooky, yeah. <laughs> kind of a, a Chernobyl tied up with uh, a tube foam. That's a pretty cool pattern. And so he, he was literally fishing it very, very actively, you know, trying to elicit strikes, basically going into it that he's going to make fish come up and rise and hit his fly. He's either exactly. going to catch a bunch or he's going to catch none. Like he was yeah, going exactly. all in on the twitch. Yeah. And the one thing the twitch does tend to elicit 
a strike on smaller fish, I think, too. If you go over that smaller fish and it's twitching, he's going to slap at it. Yeah. You might not get all the big smart boys off the bottom, but if you're looking for action, you're going to get those little guys really active. And that's one of the games in the single fly that you have to play is, is catching your little guys. Yeah, it's a numbers game. Talk, tell us about the um, single fly. Um, for, you know, talk about the history of it, when it started, um, kind of how it started, what it's for, um, what it raises money for, and then I've got a series of questions about actually fishing it and, you know, strategy and tactics and what have you. Okay. Um, I have fished the single fly since 2011, which was my first season up here. Um, I'm not sure if that was the first year or it had happened a couple of years before that. It was initially ran by National TU as a joint fundraiser for Trout Unlimited in the state and national. The last probably four years, it has been taken over by the, the local TU chapter, the Great Basin Anglers, based out of Vernal, and ran 100% locally, kind of grassroots, and 100% of the proceeds are staying here. Um, they've done some aerators out on Calder Reservoir to keep it from winter killing, and then this year, and I think last year, all the money went to Little Brush Creek, which is a stream in between the Green River and Vernal which is kind of a cool one for restoration to where it's within a short drive of Vernal where it's not quite an urban fishery, but it's not one you have to take a long drive for. And We send clients there when they're driving back to Salt Lake and they've got a half a day that they can fish. So it's a cool one to have some work done on. It needed some mitigation for sure. Um, Good stuff. And and what, what else was there in that question? <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a long one. So how does it work? Um, you know, how many people participate? Um, how does the team structure work? Um, okay. You know, do you, do, you, do you row and then one guy fishes, or are you always fishing, or what's what's the how does it work? So each team is a four-man team, which is different than a lot of the other single fly or one fly competitions. So we have four-man teams, two person per boat, and each boat takes a section, whether it's the A or the B, and each angler gets one fly for the day. You can buy a mulligan where if you lose your fly, you get one replacement. It has to be the exact same pattern now. In years past, you could switch it out. That caused some issues where if it was rainy, people would cut off their dry fly and switch to a struggle stream. In my opinion, it kind yeah. of ruined the, the theory of what the, the sport behind it or the idea of the one-fly competition. So you have to decide that morning what's going to be your bug. And then they've changed the scoring this year to a system I like or like a lot more. In years past, it was a point per fish, and you got two fish that you could measure. You had to announce that you were measuring them, and then you'd get an inch or a point per inch on those two fish. It definitely had a lot more strategy with that and favored people fishing to the little tiny fish because it didn't matter whether you caught a 20-incher or a 6-incher, you were getting one point. This year, they've switched it to a point per inch, 
for any fish over 10 inches might have been 12. And any fish under that was just five points. So if you went on a, a run of catching eight inchers, it wasn't going to get you nearly as many points as catching two 20-inchers, which is pretty cool. And then any fish over 20 got a 10-point bonus in addition to your 20 for the inches, and then any fish over 23, I think, got a 20-point bonus. So the very related for big fish. What was the biggest fish? So it's a one-day deal, right? And what one was the biggest deal, fish? Yeah, eight hours. So this year was kind of a unique one that the biggest fish was 20 inches. And so to decide who got the big fish trophy, it was who caught it first. And it was caught okay. pretty early. We started at 8.30, and I think the first 20-incher was caught at 8.41. It was with... Uh, Colin Carlson and his client, Steve Forsberg, they had a pretty entertaining day. Of, they caught a handful of big fish really early, really quick, and then proceeded to beat up on them pretty good. Colin Cook took the uh, high guide this year, and he took it by a good margin. He, he schooled us pretty good on the, the one-boat te- one score. So one question is how many teams roughly were in the competition this year? So they sold it out, and I think this year they did 10 teams. It's ranged quite a bit in the years of how many teams they allow in. I think it's just kind of with us being the grassroots, they can't do a whole lot of teams. I think next year they're going to try to raise it up to uh, 15 teams. So if my math's right, if it's 10 teams, 4 per team, that's 40. So that's uh, 2 per two per boat, so 20 boats, so 10, bo- 10 boats on the uh, A and 10 on the B? Yeah. And, and if it's one thing I would ask is, like, if it starts at 8.30, so you have 10 boats up at the top at the A section, and they're, they all start at the same time, aren't they just basically right on top of each other all the way down, or are some guys rowing down and, you know, you know, and does it become a you know a bit of a bit of a rowing competition as far as let's get down in front of everybody, or how does that work? That's definitely some people's strategy. This year, with the kind of shotgun start, was a new one. In years past, it was just you had to start fishing at eight thirty, and there was a lot of people who would um, go down to the bottom and wade fish up for a couple hours, and then go back around and launch. This year, everybody had to be launched by 9 o'clock, and you couldn't put in before 8.15. So it kept the group kind of together in the start, but with 10 boats, it's pretty easy to spread out. We ran really aggressive in the front, so we were we were around two or three boats most of the morning, and you just kind of get to your water and work hard, and with 10 boats, it's, that's not bad at all. So we see that well, on a regular some... basis where 10 boats are all launching at the same time. Yeah. Is there some serious jawboning going on between boats and stuff? I bet it'd be pretty fun. Uh, or is it, or is it so There's... serious that no, that they're, you know, everyone's so serious that they're not teasing and joking and, you know, is there, you know, what, how does another that work? boat, we're doing a, a little bit of teasing and joking amongst each other. It's just tough because it's one day where a lot of people take it a lot more serious than they normally do. It's weird for me as a guide to be out there and 
being frustrated that we're missing little fish or this just normally it's all about having a good fun time and just an experience right. on the river. And on the one side, when you're getting amped up for it, it's it's a different, unique experience. It's it's yeah. one day of fishing on the river that's unlike any other, at least for me. Yeah, that, that's what keeps me doing it. It's it's kind of fun to get really, really serious about actually putting fish in the net, as opposed to just well, experience on the river. Yeah, and I mean, I would say that. It's that, it's the one day that, you know, all the guides, they want to fish well. All the, you know, the guys that are rowing, they want to be the, you know, the lead boat or the, you know, they want the most fish in the boat. I mean, there's a lot of bragging rights and, you know, everybody's got an ego. I don't care who you are. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, but it's, you know, I mean, I'm sure it's, it's intense. Um, you know, it, it's it actually be, something... It's something I would like to see more of up here. There's a lot of guides up here who don't participate in it, and it kind of bums me out. I would love to see it as a a really fun, friendly competition amongst the guides. And yeah, there's there's not a whole lot of guides who participate in it year after year. Gotcha. So they they kind of do it once or twice, and some people love it. Some people can't stand that competition. And then we've, like, I've done it pretty much every year, whether I've fished it or guided it. But for me, um, I'm just about kind of giving back to, to you, which yeah. I think as guides, we take a lot from our resource. I mean, I make my living from the river, and you, you have to give back, whether it's little things like that or just making sure you're picking up garbage every day. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about strategy. Um, what day was it? It was in August, right? Yeah, it was the 21st, I think. They just okay, last week. So, and is it, is it normally that same time of year? So it's, you know, kind of that hopper time of, of year? Yeah, the last few years it's been um, the, pretty much the same week, I think. In the past it was in September. And that got some complaints because there were some really tough fishing years in a row. This year was definitely a little bit more difficult than it's been in years past. And uh, strategy, I mean, it, it sounds silly, but it's just put as many in the boat as you can now. The previous strategy, it was getting dinks, getting as many fish as you could, and then making sure you measured your two fish, even if they were smaller ones. Now that the strategy, it's just hooking every fish you can. Yeah. So, I mean, year to year, that's going to change a lot on where kind of the hot section of the river is and whether you're fishing from the boat or wading in the run and gun or whether you're staying up high. This year, we, we ran and pushed pretty hard and tried to fish the fast water, and we did a little bit of wade fishing, which worked out well for us. Uh, we caught most of our fish waiting, which was kind of cool fish and water. I don't fish every day. As far as picking your fly, um, well, before I get into that, how many out of the competitors, how many bugs were, you know, dry flies and how many of them were streamers? What percentage was, you know, dry and what percentage was streamer? 
there was very few people who threw streamers this year. I would guess probably three or four anglers threw streamers, okay. and it wasn't didn't pay off this year. In years past, it had. Um, through the day, I was really worried about streamer anglers because we had a crazy, crazy microburst come in. I mean, 35 so hour gusts and hail and rain. I mean, we it was the heaviest rainstorm we'd had all summer. So, so you thought it, it really clouded up? You thought guys. the streamers were going to kill them? Yep. Yeah, as we we were pulled over hiding under a cliff from the rain as another boat went by throwing streamers, and we were expecting them to just be lighting it up. And they, they actually had a pretty slow day on the streamer, which was unlike what you would have thought would have happened. And then there was probably three or four anglers that, that nymphed also. And some of them did really well, and some did, did okay. With the nymphing, you've got to be really, really on your game and making sure you're not hanging on the bottom. Yeah, because, I mean, you lose that ply, you get you have a mulligan ply, but it's real easy to hang up, isn't it? Yeah, there was a guy, Luke, who was out there the day before um, on a guided trip, and he was absolutely crushing it. I mean, every time I saw him, his rod was rods were bent. And I was fishing around him the next day on the one fly, and I was really worried in the morning because I knew in the afternoon he was going to be really, really successful with the rig. But they had lost both their bugs by about noon and were out of it before they got to the window in the day where they would have had a lot of success. So we probably oh, touched him with Luke losing his bugs early. Oh, I think man. He had one angler who lost his, or lost his bug around 10 o'clock, and they didn't get a mulligan. And it's, as far as strategy goes, you have to get your mulligan. If you think you're going to win or want to try to win, there's no reason to not buy it. It's 100 bucks per fly, which isn't cheap. But in the big picture, if you're, if you're trying to bring home the plaque, yeah, you better do it. That's probably number one on strategy. Make sure you have your mulligan. Yeah, for sure. Let's take a quick break here for our sponsors, and then I'll get right back into it here. Guys, we're weeks away from the start of hunting seasons in most states. No doubt you'll have some trips planned. If you're going to be out for longer than a few days, take a look at Canyon Cooler's Outfitter line of premium ice chests. They're going to keep your ice intact for just as long as the other premium coolers, but aren't going to cost you a fortune, leaving more money in your pockets while keeping your food and drinks cold. And here's the deal. There are subtle differences between coolers that you don't really notice until you've used a few of them. What's great about the Outfitter series from Canyon Coolers is they're designed to be flush vertically without the cupcake tops you'll see on other premium coolers. This lets you fit them into tight spaces with ease and they're not going to get hung up on other gear. It's one of those things you'll really appreciate after you've used them that you don't even realize before. And Canyon Coolers offers the coolers industry's no-hassle no fault, lifetime warranty. No matter what happens to your ice chest, no matter who bought it 
or how long you've owned it. If the cooler falls out of the back of your truck and you drag it down the highway for 50 miles, all you have to do is send them a picture of the damage and Canyon will replace or repair the cooler for you. It's the last cooler you'll ever need to buy. It keeps ice just as long, if not longer, than the other premium brands. Costs you less and is backed by an incredible warranty and a Second Amendment supportive company based in Flagstaff, Arizona. And now, just for my podcast listeners, save 10% off Canyon's already low prices and get free shipping by using the promo code JSCOTT at checkout. Check them out at canyoncoolers.com. All right, okay, Colby, jump back in. I've got, yeah, I've got a question about, um, so these dry flies, I would assume that on the guys in the, in the single fly that were fishing, big bugs, I, I assume they're fishing you know, big foam bugs of some sort, right? Yep. Um, we threw kind of the smaller end of big foam bugs. I was probably throwing a 10 and a 12 with my angler. Scott was probably a, a 12 and a 8, I think is what he was throwing. And his smaller fly definitely outperformed his bigger one. And were were you fishing yourself or were you guiding? I was guiding this year. Okay. Um, so you were throwing a little bit smaller. Across the board, color-wise, what would you say was the predominant color um, of, of, you know, bug? Um, I didn't go through and ask a lot of other people what they were fishing, but I would assume it was a pretty good mix between tan and black. Those tend to be okay. the, the two bigger colors out here. In years past, I've always went tan because you can always sharpie your flies down and color them up to go darker. This year, the rules were a little ambiguous whether that was legal or not, so we didn't do it. This year, it said you couldn't add anything onto your fly. You could fix your fly, so if you had your rubber leg fell off, you could tie that rubber leg back on, but you couldn't add anything. And we didn't clarify if sharpening your fly would be adding something or not. So we didn't sharpie this year. But our tan fly outfished our black fly. So. I was up but in I Jackson. I an angler. I almost always start tan and I tie tan for that reason because you can always sharpie one black. You can't take a black fly and make it light, but you can take a light fly and make it black. And that's something for people out there listening. You're talking about using a Sharpie to, to color your fly. One question I would have in regards to that is, is it always black or is there also a brown Sharpie in your boat where you're going, you know, is it, is it always tan or black or do you ever, you know, doll it up with brown or, or other colors? Olive? Nope, I've got a, a pretty good arsenal of Sharpies, whether it's black, orange, purple, red, green, um, brown. I've got a silver one in there. Um, the orange one gets used a lot with most flies will have a white post on them in the early morning when you have the glare. If you put a little bit of orange on that white post, it helps you a lot. Um, one that certain times of the year, and getting bored isn't quite the right way to phrase it, but <laughs> experiment. when you start trying to experiment, yeah, and get get a little bit, I guess, crazy. Most things in nature that are black aren't really black. 
it's kind of a spectrumized color where if you think of a, a magpie, it's probably the easiest example where it looks black. But when you get close and look at the feathers, depending on which angle you look at it, it's kind of an iridescent green or purple or red. Yeah. So a lot of times when I go black, I'll do purple and orange and red and green, all kind of combined to where from a distance it looks black. But when you get up close, it's actually colors, a spectrumized color range. And in the nymph game, there's a lot of people who are really serious about that. They'll do like a spectrumized leech where it's not black, it's all sorts of different colors combined to look black. Interesting. So, on a foam bug, I think that's more in my head. But on the nymphs and the, the streamers, I think there's actually some something behind it. But when I say all in my head, to me, confidence is the most important thing when picking out a fly. If I have a client who has a lot of faith in a bug that I don't have a lot of faith in, I would rather him fish a fly that he's super confident in than fish one that I know will catch fish that he doesn't believe will get one. Confidence right. is the most important factor. You, you talk about getting out of the boat um, in places and wade fishing um, when you're just trying to put numbers, you know, fish in the net. As a guide, you know a lot of those places where you can get out of the boat and catch a fish or two, um, where maybe with a client you wouldn't stop and do that. Like, did you target specific areas that you knew that if you got down there and, you know, quote-unquote, were kind of first right in there that you could catch a fish or two? Is that your thought? Yeah, so the areas we targeted wade fishing were the sections on the river where it's a lot faster, where when you're going through on the boat, you can't fish it really thoroughly. Excuse me. So when we can get out and wade, you can pick each little rock pocket apart and just comb the water, make sure you've got everything covered. And when you're going down in the boat, it's just kind of plop one there, plop one there, plop one there. And so every day that water isn't covered really, really hard, if that makes sense. No matter yeah. how hard you row the boat, you can't fish that little pocket water as thoroughly as you'd like. So to get down to the bottom of it and then wade fish back up, you can make sure you've got every little nook and cranny covered with a fly. And I also think that helps you find some of those bigger fish too. Those bigger fish know to, to live in that rock where you really can't get a good fish from the, or get a good drift from the boat. And on a river like the Green that's not wade fished effectively often, I think that helps you a lot. Because on the green, we only have the the bottom mile is wade fished really hard, and then the top half mile. And the section in the, the middle doesn't doesn't get wade fished well often. There's a lot of people who are willing to drive three or four hours, but they're not willing to hike five minutes. So I always wonder that as I'm rowing down, you know, river left, the trail's on the left, uh, you know, river left as you're going down for the listeners that aren't familiar with the river and river right pretty much, you know, there's that I know of, there's no trail. People still, you know, pull the boat over there and wade fish over there, but the main mm -hmm. pressure is river left. I always wonder that, you know, do most of the, I always think that most of the boats just fish river right because the, the left gets pounded, but that it sounds like, you know, you're saying most of the pressure is the, the bottom mile and the top half mile and the rest of it's 
you know, not hit as much by wade fishermen. Yeah, I so would I, I would venture a guess that 90 to 95% of our wade fishing hours are the bottom half a mile of A and the top half mile of B. So it's crazy how few people explore the river on Philip. Yeah. Um, just like hunting. That 100 yards yeah. off the road is, is hunted a lot more thoroughly than everywhere else. Yeah, for sure. Which section, um, so B section, I think I heard you say, actually was the winning the, the, the winning, uh, the single fly winner fished the B section? So the the high guide, the winner oh, as far as, yeah, it's a, a team competition. So you have your A and your B boat, and you combine the scores, and okay. team winner. Okay. But yeah, Colin Carlson, who um, guided, can't remember the name of their team, but uh, he had the high boat score for the river, and his boat score beat probably more than half of the teams. Colin did really, really well this year. That's good. Good for him. Um, mm -hmm. let's, I want to ask you about the sea section a little bit um, as far as terrestrial fishing. Um, is there some good terrestrial fishing to be had on the sea section, or is it is it a, a lot different type of river than the AB a, section? Um, down on the sea, it definitely is a lot more of a terrestrial river. There's certain hatches that do get thick down there, but there's just not the aquatic insect life that there is up on A and B. We don't have the moss and the, the aquatic vegetation that holds the biomass like A and B does. So throwing the hopper down there is a lot more successful than anything else, really. So I'm pretty much only throwing a hopper or a streamer down on, on the C-section. And that's where some big fish live because of because they're eating other fish and they're eating terrestrials and, and such, right? I mean, aren't there some really big fish down on sea, but there's less fish down there? Yeah, the fish count goes down dramatically down there. Um, so your average fish is quite a bit bigger. This year there's been a lot of little fish, kind of that 12-inch range that we haven't seen in years past. But the sea is a, a really fickle section. There's a lot of people who absolutely love it, myself included. I, I guide down there as much as I can. But the, the wind affects you a lot more down there. It's a little flatter and more open. And you'll have days down there where you don't get many eats. And it, it burns a lot of people where they'll go down and they're excited. They think they're going to catch great fish. And they'll float all day and maybe see two or three eats all day, which is tough. You yeah. kind of have to know what you're getting into, that it's a, a high-risk, high-reward fishery down there. It's funny, but there's a lot of guys all... in town who have never even fished it. They've lived really? 30, 40 miles from it for years and have never gone down there. But then every once in a while, you'll get a fish to come up that just wows you, right? Yeah, yeah, I think you're, the big fish we see on the river, more often than not, are caught lower down on the section. Um, there's been more big fish caught on A this year than I've ever seen, and as a whole, 
there's probably more big fish on the A, but it's deep enough and there's enough small fish for them to eat. We don't ever see them. I think they're fully nocturnal and uh, only eating the 10-inch rainbows down on C with they're not having the high biomass like there is on A. They do have to make the mistake every now and then and eat our fly. I had a question come in. Uh, someone was going to be going up to the Green River Labor Day weekend. Obviously, it's a busy weekend up there. Um, what kind of forecast and what would you recommend guys throw to be effective? Um, you know, river-wide, probably talk, they're probably talking AB, um, mm -hmm. but what would you be throwing and, and what do you, what do you, how do you see it? You know, is it, is it fishing pretty tough right now? Is it fishing pretty good? What's the status? It's it's kind of right in between. It's not bad, but it's definitely not good, and it varies a lot from day to day. I think if somebody were to be a a decent nymper and go out and fish that trico or the pseudo nymphs where they're throwing a, a small little pheasant tail or jujubatus, or that you're definitely going to get some good action. And if you're a dry or die guy, throwing the hopper, you're you're seeing enough fish come up that it's it's worth doing for sure. And right now at the dry, it seems like the eats are coming grouped together. So you'll go a mile and not see much, and then you'll get six or seven eats in 100 yards, which is kind of fun when it all comes together quick and then you pound on them. And those are probably the banks where you're seeing a little more, little more hopper action and the terrestrials are actually hitting the water. So... Yeah, it's not not bad fishing by any means. Definitely not not the time of year to make the big travel up here if you weren't going to, but it's definitely not worth avoiding. And especially right. with Colorado not having any water right now. We're probably the the one positive fishery in the West right now that or at least the Colorado, Utah area as far as big water. Colorado, there's a lot of water that's in that mid to upper sixties where it's pretty tough to fish, and you're going to have a high mortality rate. So it's nice on the green where we keep our, our temps low, and midsummer you can actually fish it hard and effectively and not have to worry about a high mortality rate. Yeah, that's one thing. I When I got back from my dull sheep hunt, I've actually been um, monitoring the water temperature. Uh, here where we live, we have uh, it's 300 acres, and there's um, – anyway, it's a private – kind of fishing community and actually at uh, 2 o'clock uh, said no more fishing after 2 o'clock because of the water temperature and but when I've got when I got back from the dull sheep hunt I've been monitoring it every every night for my my buddy well actually MJ you've met him um, is mm -hmm. the uh, president of the fishing committee or whatever and so I've been going down and measuring the water temp and it's it's coming down um, I'm not getting temps over 60 on my thermometer oh, nice. um yeah which is good because i think you know we've been having the last five six seven days we've been having a lot cooler nights so it's it's yeah, finally coming down yeah so that that's good news um colby i wanted to you tie a lot of flies um and you actually have flies that can be um, bought commercially you know uh by by people I want to ask you about how you kind of got into that, 
and what flies have been picked up and how does someone, you know, like yourself go about getting flies that, you know, you tie commercially and that the, you know, the public can buy and what have you? Yeah, I've kind of played in the, the commercial game a little bit. It's nothing that I've ever taken really, really serious. There's a lot of people out there who are really, really excellent tires. I'm definitely a guide tire where tying quick, easy, effective patterns that that will catch fish. They often don't sell as well as the, the fancy ones, but to kind of get started in that, yeah. Tie a lot, come up with a pattern that is unique enough that you're hopefully not making somebody else mad that you're copying their pattern. This day and age, it's pretty tough. It's all been done by somebody at some point, it seems like. Um, the big thing now is new materials, breaking new materials in, whether it's foam or different synthetics, to kind of create a, an original pattern. And most of the, the fly companies will ask you to submit three or four exact ties of the pattern, and they will go through and kind of cut one apart to see how you've tied it and built it. And then they'll keep one for reference, and then they'll fish some to see if it's actually a, a fishy fly or just is going to catch fishermen. And then at that point, they'll um, have you do a step-by-step -step instruction that they'll send off to the factory and have mass-produced, and then they'll send you copies of it to make sure it's up to your standards. You can either say yes, and they'll put it into production and out into the shops, or you'll go through and tweak things and get it back to where it's something that you're happy having your name on. Where are your flies sold? And, and talk a little bit about the ones that you've created that are commercially okay. sold. So I have my flies through Rainey's Flies. They're a, a local Utah company and a company that I've known for at least a dozen years now. They've been really, really good at all of our local events with donating product and being really, really supportive of the local community. And So when I started submitting flies, it wasn't a question of who I was going to go with. I just... Jesse Riding's always been a, a very upstanding guy and love him. So I've, my flies are available with retailers who carry Rainey's flies. Um, the one that I'm really excited about that should be coming out this fall is a, a grasshopper called the Quink Hopper that is a, uh, a half-submerged grasshopper. So there's a mayfly pattern called the Quink Hammer. It has its own type of hook where the thorax is down underneath the water, and I've tied my hopper the same way to where the it's, it's the, the bottom's dipping down in, the butt's submerged, and it's been an effective fly for me. It started out where we were twitching flies out in the middle, and they were getting eaten really re well when they were just under the surface. So I was trying to design a fly that you could dead drift that kind of looked just under the surface. So the clink camera. So that that's going to come out um, this this fall. Yep, it should be available in in this fall's ordering. So there's a couple tires who sell them right now too. There's a thin air angler on Instagram. I think he'll he'll sell some, and his ties are absolutely amazing. I would I would fish his ties before mine because he can tie it a lot better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> 
some of these tires that, you know, they've been around for a long time. I mean, can guys make a full living, you know, off of, you know, if, if you get a fly that really hits big and hits big across, say, the West or, you know, the world for that matter, I mean, can, can guys literally get royalties and, get, you know, get nice checks or is it just kind of a little bit of a supplement for an income? There's a handful of people out there who probably make enough to consider a living, but it's very, very few and far between. It's uh, something that if you are wanting to do, there's a lot of self-promotion and testing and research and development, and it's a lot of work to, to make any money. Most guys are making just enough to have some beer money or to kind of buy fly tying materials or they're just paying for their hobby. Um, I definitely don't make enough to to have it be of any note. It's it's a little check here and there that hopefully one day will add up to something, but for the most part, it's, it's just a little bit to help. So yeah. From, uh, I think you've got guys like got- Kelly Gallup who probably have a pretty good royalty check, but but not many who are making a lot of money. It's got to be neat, though, to design a fly and have people fish it and, you know, have people say, man, I'm hammering them in there. You know, they're talking about your fly and you don't e- they don't even know you tied it. And that's, for fly tires, that's got to be a neat experience to know that you've tied something up that people are really having success with. No, it, it, it is. There's, there's a, a blog called Gink and Gasoline that I've followed forever and this summer they did a, a little write-up on that clink hammer and that was kind of one of those like surreal moments as a an angler where uh, a journalist or a writer whose work you followed and liked for a long time took notice of something you did was that was pretty neat and it's kind of fun that's when cool. you hear people talking about fishing your bugs that's cool i i want to um we got a few questions in from listeners, and I want to just kind of, um, kind of get answers to their questions. Um, some may be longer, some may be shorter answers. Uh, but I get a question on Instagram from Backcountry underscore Drifter that says, "How does one go about catching the biggest trout in a given system?" I would say throwing large flies at night. Um, I've never been one of the guys who is only targeting big fish. Most of the people I know who are chasing large fish, it's done at night, either throwing a mouse or throwing big streamers, something that the fish are hearing and feeling more so than actually seeing. But if somebody were to come to me and say, all I want to do is catch a giant fish. We'd be fishing at night and on water that's probably not as pressured as everywhere else, finding the deep buckets where that fish can get away from the heavy traffic and the heavy pressure and then uh, get in there at night when he's relaxed and calm and not so worried. On, on any given river system, uh, the big brown trout is more than likely going to be the big fish in the river, right? Um, no, I mean, there's a lot of rivers where the rainbows will definitely have the 
the big fish. And it all depends on what your biomass is and what allows those fish to get big. The rainbows tend to grow quite a bit quicker. So if you're somewhere where there's a lot of scuds and a lot of small things that they can eat, the rainbows tend to get bigger quicker than the browns where they're more of a a carnivorous, pecivorous animal where it takes years and years for them to get large. So our biologist says that rainbows live half as long but will grow twice as quick. So that one's all about the biology of a, a given water system. Okay, let me throw a twist in your answer. Um, let's say that they said, okay, target the biggest fish in a river system, but not at night. What would your answer be, or what would it change? Um, if your goal is just to catch the big one, not at night, the spawn is going to be the easiest time, because once again, it'll bring that nocturnal hidden fish out into the open, that's definitely one that touches on a lot of ethical issues to where you're willing to go out and chase a fish on the spawn and pull one off of the red. There's a lot of anglers who do, and there's a lot more people who think that that's not the right way to do it. Um, As a whole, if you're targeting big fish, I definitely would avoid that. So... I mean, Wasn't there a mag? I, there was a magazine article I've read somewhere, and there was some guys pointing fingers and such at some guys that were getting glory shots in a magazine or what have you, um, and they were saying that they were they were catching them off the reds, and and uh, there was some guys that were really upset about it. Yeah, that was one that, that hit the fan last year. Um, that was one that was kind of brought to light. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of those hero shots of giant browns that you see here are fish coming off of reds. There's a lot of people yeah. who that's, that's what they do, and whether they're keeping those photos and releasing them the next year to where, in theory, people don't know. There's a lot of that right. going on. And that was just, he had to, he took the fall for there, a lot of people. And hopefully it opened up some eyes and will yeah. kind of take somebody to that next step in the the sportsman's ranking. Is that one that you sure. talked about with your listeners before, the, the stages of a sportsman? I, I haven't. I, I mean, I haven't specifically, but I mean, we've talked, you know, we've hit the edges of, of some of that mm-hmm. stuff, and I think it's definitely one of those things that, you know, whoever the guy was, you know, w- whether he did it or not, the, the, the real, in my mind, the real eye-opener is it's kind of an eye-opener for everyone. And like you yeah. said, you know, it's easy for us to say, oh, that guy, and he's horrible. Well, a lot of us have done things that, you know, at t- some point in time in our life that you would say, I wish I wouldn't have done that. So it's yeah. it's easy for me to say, you know what, maybe give the guy a break. You know, maybe he regrets it. Maybe not. I, I don't even no. know the guy. So, no, but 100%. He's somebody I know, and... uh it, it opened his eyes, and hopefully it opened a lot of people's eyes. And to where just catching the big fish isn't worth hurting a fishery. Uh, yeah, looking sure. down the road long term and helping to to educate other anglers and 
hopefully what everybody views is the right way to do it in an ethical way. And there's some bodies of water where fishing with spawn isn't as big of a deal. And then there's other other waters where it is a big deal, where damage is happening and they probably should be closed down. I mean, on the East yeah. Coast, most of the rivers in the spawn are closed down. And I, as a whole, I think that's a, a pretty good practice. The rivers can definitely use some time to recover. When when I get a question about someone, you know, targeting a big buck or a big bull or something, I, I want to know if there's a direct correlation here with potentially if someone's looking to target big fish. I'm curious your thoughts on this. Is it feasible to say, I always tell people, if you want to find a you know big one, get up in glass and look and you know do a lot of observing. What about giving people advice if they're targeting, trying to catch bigger fish or the big fish, um, spending days literally walking banks and getting up on cliffs and really observing what's going on and looking for big fish from a, um, from a targeting point. That is huge. Talk talk a little bit about that because I think think that's something that gets missed and I think that's a huge thing that if someone had the time and, and, you know, a lot of people talk about wanting to catch a big fish but they just want to go fishing and then they – but then if you really want to get a big fish, you've got to find a big fish. Exactly. So talk a little bit about trying to to target one and and find one and then figure out how to fish them. Yeah, I mean, to start, you have to find a body of water that is capable of holding big fish and does hold big fish. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean big water. Um, the green in Utah is pretty much the biggest river. It's trout river. But it necessarily isn't the place to go to target big fish. A lot of that is pressure. but So it's kind of finding something off the beaten path for sure, and then slowing down, being there during the hatch, and finding those fish when they're in their feeding patterns and off the bottom, out of the shadows, and exposing themselves. So, and the key there is slowing down and observing. And I'm assuming it's the same way to finding a big buck or finding a big bull, that it's not just running out to as far off the road as you can get. It's slowing down, trying to find that, that feeding lane and figuring out where the fish is in it and then his timing and why he's there at that given time. And don't you think with with big fish too, like you as a guide, you know some of the rocks were like, I saw a big fish, I know a big fish lives right there. Half of it is, exactly what you said, being able to wait for the exact right time when he is going to come and eat your fly. Like, it, yeah. you know, I, I love, I love kind of sight fishing, not necessarily talk. I love dry fly fishing, but I love like getting up in, you know, cliffs and rocks and really watching and like, you know, you got six or eight fish and you see them moving around and then all of a sudden you see one fish over there and he's just, you know, there might be an hour in the day when he's actually doing something. Have have you ta- ever targeted a specific fish like that you know was there, and then you know you three clients have missed them, and then all of a sudden you've spent three days 
down there, you know, on your day off or after work or something, and then you just go and figure them out, and then you, you know, try and catch them? Is there any circumstance where you've done something like that, where, oh, yeah, you know, no, one there's, fish there's has, like, got under that. your skin? <laughs> no, I mean, there's a lot of times where we'll have a big fish eat, or you'll see him spook out, and so you kind of know his hole and his home. I I feel like the vast majority of trout are very, very habitual, and they'll use the same feeding lane day after day until they have a reason not to, whether they're spooked off, the hatch has changed, the flow has changed. They're lazy, so if he knows there's food there, he's going to go back. So if I have a client who misses a big fish or spooks a big fish, I'll kind of pay attention to all the conditions at that exact moment, time of day, if there's anybody in front of me, what the hatch is, what the weather's done, and then try to reproduce that as close as I can with somebody who I think is capable of getting the fly where it needs to be. Because one of the tough things as a guide is you may know the spot where that fish is at, and you may have a client who can get the fly there, but you have to talk them through it well enough you can't say, okay, yesterday I had a, a two-foot fish eat my fly here, and then they're hyped up and pumped, <laughs> and when they get their shot, it all goes to hell. So you yeah. kind of play a little bit of a mental game there of making sure somebody's relaxed enough to be able to fish well, but realize that at this moment we're, we're pretty serious about the game and like when one when, comes up to eat, make sure you're on your game because that's the big one. <laughs> yeah. Well, just letting somebody know that, in, that that spot is a spot that you want to fly, but not to like, freak somebody out. Don't give somebody buck fever knowing that if they miss their next fish, that it might have been the, the fish of their lifetime. I had one last year on the B section in a little side channel that... I'd had clients missed a couple times, and I knew it was an absolute beast. And I had this lady, first day fishing, her and her husband. Her husband had fished a little bit, and I was getting him set up on it, and I think I got him a little too worked up. He got tangled right as we were coming in, had her toss it in, first day of fishing, and she got him to eat and missed him. And I think that was enough that that made her day. She saw the whole thing. But the following day, I had a client who had fished with quite a bit come in, and he actually hooked it. And we fought the fish up and down the channel and out into the main seam. And he was probably on 10, 15 minutes before we lost it. And I wouldn't have been surprised if it was a 26, 27-inch fish. <laughs> that was one that will haunt me for a while. <laughs> I know it haunts him. <laughs> and was it is it gone forever like you haven't seen it since type of thing I haven't seen it since and I there's any given t any day that I can get a fly on that spot that there's a, a fly drifting through that bucket where that fish was <laughs> so and like I was saying I think that they'll stay there until there's a reason for them not to stay there and we definitely pulled that fish a good way from its hole and I, I haven't seen it go back but last year I had a a 22-inch brown that I caught probably four or five times, and multiple times we ended up landing it on the other side of the river, and 
a good ways away from where we hooked it, and it would go back to the exact same little teeny inconspicuous bucket on the hole or on the shore. Mm. It would go back every day. So, I mean, I, I had that fish eat at least a dozen times. That's so, pretty dang neat. Even with getting poked, they'll go back to their, their zone. And so that's another one for people targeting big fish. If you're out and stalking and spotting and you spot him, and even if you spook him, come back. Pay attention to that yeah. spot. And as you're coming in, come in stealthier next time. Come in quieter next time. Because more than likely, that fish will be back in the same spot. Good stuff. Let's take another quick break here, and then I've got a few more questions, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Guys, I want to thank GoHunt.com Optics and Gear Shop for sponsoring, being the title sponsor of this podcast. And my friend, Cody Nelson, the glassing guru and the optics authority, is the optics manager at GoHunt.com within the gear shop. Call Cody directly for info and sales on all optics, rifle scopes, spotting scopes, binoculars. You can reach him at 702-847-8747, extension 2, or email Cody at optics, that's O-P-T-I-E. CS at GoHunt.com. I want to thank GoHunt.com, Gear Shop, and Optics Department for title sponsoring this podcast. Guys, I also want to thank Kuyu.com. That's K-U-I-U.com. Kuyu Ultralight Hunting has been the gear that I've been wearing since 2010. And obviously, most of you know the founder, Jason Harrison, has recently passed away. And it's been uh, amazing to see the support from all of the Kuyu Nation and all of the people in the industry. And I just encourage you guys, if you haven't checked out Kuyu gear, go to KUIU.com. Check it out. Let's get back to the podcast. Okay, Colby, you had a question that came in um, to one of your Instagram followers, I believe, and it said, Trout stay on the green. What's your thoughts on that? I, I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Uh, trout spay on the green. Oh, trout spay on the green. It is really, really effective certain times of year and certain areas on the river. It's one that I am just starting to get into. I just got a six-weight um, spay rod from Epic that I haven't had a, a day off yet to go and use, but I am excited to get out there um western rivers guide service has a handful of guides who are just total steelhead junkies and they throw the two-handed rod out here a lot and the one thing that surprises me with it it doesn't seem like the guys throwing the two-handed rods are catching giant fish but if you're out there when caddis are moving or in an area where throwing a, a slow streamer works they catch a lot of fish. And it's just the same thing like steelhead, finding a run where you can effectively work it. So it's finding the water that works for your setup and then just covering it top to bottom. It's definitely something that I'm surprised I don't see more of out here. I'll be interested to see as you progress with that. It'll be cool to see some of your photos and stuff. Another I'm question really that came in... 
um, plastic trash and waste left behind by anglers, how it affects the river life, and what are ways to combat it. So that's one that's been really neat the last couple of years in the fly fishing community, um, seeing the perception on litter change dramatically. Um, there's a handful of companies out now that are kind of doing rewards for anglers on picking up garbage, and there's always Instagram contests about showing your net full of garbage. And it's been really neat to raise awareness on how easy it is for anglers and guides to just pick up what little bit of trash they see as they're walking out. And if everybody picks up more than they put down, it obviously there's no garbage. And in the last couple of years, there's been the move amongst the guide community to get rid of single-use plastic water bottles and just go to reusable water bottles. That one's been neat. This year, we've seen way fewer just water bottles floating down the river, and I would really attribute that to the guide community getting rid of single-use plastic. I think just as a whole in America, that, that trend is happening, and I know a lot of th people think that it's silly and that one person's plastic use doesn't change anything, but if everybody's doing something, a whole lot gets done. So really what it comes down to is just if you see garbage, pick it up. It's not, it up. not hard. I mean, there's anglers. We're always carrying vests and bags and nets. We've got places to put the garbage we find. So it's just on your way out, pick up every piece you see, and the next time you go out, it's clean. And I, I mean, the same thing for hunters. It's crazy and heartbreaking when you spend four hours hiking up a mountain and you get to some place that the whole time you're hiking, you're thinking, man, somebody's never been here before. And you get up and around the corner and there's an old beer can. And yeah. you end up leaving it there. And if you picked it up and the next person who makes it up that far, they actually get that experience of thinking that nobody's ever been there before. It's all in our head, but when you're not seeing yeah. waste from humans, it's pretty cool to feel that remoteness. And one beer can just totally ruins it. For sure. For sure. Uh, another question that came in is, how much is an appropriate tip for your fishing guide? So that's one that varies a lot from place to place. If you're on a, a saltwater trip in Mexico, there's a lot of lodges who say that $50 is a totally adequate tip there. But if you're in Key West fishing with a guide and you don't tip him $200, he probably won't have an opening day for you the following year. So it kind of is the same, right in between on trout fishing through the West. Um, like anywhere, 15 to 20% is what people expect, but if you have a great day and you are planning on coming back, you tip more. It's crazy what $20 on a, a tip will do to your guide's attitude when you come back. So my yeah. most common tip is probably $120, but if somebody gives me $200, the next year when they come back, I row my ass off so yeah. hard. Yeah. And, I mean, lunch is usually a little bit better, and it's the cheapest money you can spend. If you go yeah. a little bit above and beyond on your tip, it's crazy what the guide will do next year. 
They remember you. They'll know what flies you fish. They know what you want at lunch. They might have a bottle of whiskey in the boat that wasn't there before. They're just, it's amazing what little bit will change a, a day, if that makes sense. So it's not like there's a, yeah. a set price that's appropriate, but an extra $20 goes a long ways. If you're $20 under, they don't want to fish with you again. If you're $20 over, you end up on that favorite favorite list. And if you're $100 over, you'll, you'll end up finding openings during prime time when everybody was booked out. So that's probably the best thing yeah. about it. If you're a big tipper, there's always a day in prime time for you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's one thing in the, you know, it's in the hunting industry. Um, I've had a few times and it's just mind boggling where you don't get a tip at all. I mean, we're talking, you had a great trip. Everything was fantastic. It's in my contract, like, you know, and you know, okay, I had a great time and off they go. And it's just like, wow. I mean, it's just amazing how some people think that, you know, it's custom when you go to a restaurant that you tip, you know, 15 or 20%. Mm-hmm. And here you go on a, you know, seven-day trip or if it's a turkey hunt, a, you know, four-day trip and, and then no tip at all. And it's just mind-boggling. But like you said, it's it's human nature, too, to be like, well, that guy's not coming back. <laughs> yeah. You know? And, I mean, you hate to be like that, but that's the truth. I mean, if 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 you're talking to all the guys that you fish with and, and they get a low tip or they don't get a tip, like, they're never going to fish with that person again. Yeah. And it's, like, it's a slap in the face because those guys, you guys work your butt off, and um, that's just customary that you, you know, reward someone for their work and how you phrase that a slap in the face is a good way of 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 phrasing it because i mean at the end of the day very rarely do i put out like a comment card and say how was i is there anything i could do to improve that i mean we kind of use our tips as a gauge of if you had a good day or you had a bad day and i mean you can have a great day and not catch a lot of fish and you can have a horrible day and catch a ton of fish. So for us as guides, the number of fish in the boat really isn't how we judge our success. And if you get a bad tip, you assume your clients had a a poor day. And if you're a good guide, that eats at you and it bothers you and you have a hard time. Yeah. What did I do wrong? And yeah, it's, it's what did I do wrong? And it's, it's, it does. It affects you personally because it's, you think that somebody didn't enjoy their day. It's funny how it doesn't so much matter about the money, that it's more about the feedback. And that's one thing, too, that if I have a guy who comes out and he's a, a blue-collar guy, and I know that this, the one day on the green was his vacation for the year, that he saved up all year, and... I know that his $60 tip, which would be a really low tip on average, was a lot to him. That doesn't hurt. It's all about what somebody can and what they do, and if they vocalize that to you too, if you know somebody isn't a rich guy and they 
they give you what they feel is appropriate and they have a great time and they let you know and they let you know you did well, then that's a different story. It isn't about the money. It's about the the feedback and the, the thought behind the it. vibe you get, yeah. Because, I mean, yeah. $20 yeah. through the course of the day isn't isn't much, but like I was saying, that's a well-spent $20 for a client to go a little above because just then your guide knows that you enjoyed fishing with them. So that's a conversation that's hard for me to have because it feels greedy and unthankful to say it. But like I was saying, it's not about the money, so to speak. Yeah, no, but I think it's something that's important that we talk about because it comes yeah. up a lot, and I get a lot. Yeah. And people ask me, you know, oh, hey, I'm going on a hunt here, or I'm going on a trip here, I'm fishing here, I'm, you know, doing this, and it's like, should I tip? And I always answer, should you tip? Like, of course you should tip. Well, how much? Well, you know, I tell them, hey, just because you shoot something big or you you shoot shoot an animal, like sometimes you know, you need to tip just as much if you don't get something because, you know, there's still been an effort put in. You know, yeah. don't base your, your success of your trip on did you get a big one or not. I mean, that's not, yeah. that shouldn't be your mindset. So I think it's it's very important to talk about. I think it's, yeah. I think it's important. Because the days um, where it's hard are the days that I work a lot harder. I mean, when fishing's right, easy and you're just catching them everywhere, those are the easy days. You don't work hard on the the easy days right. in comparison to the days where each eat and each possibility of catching a fish is a really big deal. So, I mean, the harder it is on the river or hunting, the harder your guide is working. So you might yeah, end sure. up with just a couple fish, but hopefully your guide worked his ass off to make that happen. Yeah. For sure. Um well, I've been bending your ear for a while now. Um, I do want to ask you, do you have any plans um, this fall to get out, do any bird hunting, do any do any hunting at all, or are you going to be guiding full-time? What's going on uh, with you this fall and this winter? Yeah, this, this fall I've got, um, I drew my, my deer tag muzzleloader up here in the area. I have a couple oh, days marked off for it. It's, it's just a, kind of the general season hunt. In Utah, uh -huh. we don't necessarily draw every year i've been lucky the last few um i've got a couple small bucks that i've been seeing driving out and kind of sort of know where i think they're living i haven't seen anything that i've been too excited about yet here in a week or two i'll start scouting pretty hard every day after work going and looking for something that i want to shoot um I messed up on my elk hunt, which is just a general season over-the-counter elk hunt. I had a client from Texas who was wanting to come up and do some grouse shooting also while he was fishing, and I ended up booking him the, the first three days of my my elk hunt. So my elk hunt might not be what I usually do. Mm -hmm. so, but I'll get up and hopefully do some hunting after work on that, and uh, hopefully if I do shoot a good one, it's close to the road or I can call some buddies to help me out to where it's not get off the river, shoot an elk, pack an elk off, and then <laughs> wake up and go back to work in the morning. Those days are pretty hard. I did that last yeah. year. 
But uh, and then the bird hunting, I'm I'm gonna try to to focus a little bit more on my upland this year. Last year I I chased pheasants quite a bit. I actually didn't shoot one duck or goose last year, which was a a first for me since I've started hunting. I got my swan, which was my first for me in Utah, and it was an absolute riot. Um, well, that's cool. That's one that I would suggest everybody to put in for if uh, if that's an, at all an interest for you. And I'm probably just a lot of guys off in Utah for saying that, making it harder to draw, but it was a really, really fun hunt. I've got a buddy that's awesome. out here, Jeff Bringhurst, who his passion is hunting swans, and he took me out and uh, gave me the royal treatment on a, a hunt, and it was probably the funnest bird I've ever shot. We got it all on film and have some really cool footage of it and are just kind of trying to figure out what to do with it now. So, yeah, I'll be that chasing awesome. pheasants. I didn't draw a swan this year. And then through the winter, I've got a couple saltwater trips planned, and uh, hopefully I can put a couple more together. So that's one that we should maybe do a, a podcast on in the future is just saltwater fishing and how and where and what to do and how to get into that game because that's yeah that's a riot. sure that's what I yeah, look for let's now do that that so I'm just that's really cool forward into going and fishing salt I want to if if anybody's interested in contacting you about that I want to give you a chance to let people know how they can uh, find you follow you reach out to you so um, if you do that and um, it's been an awesome conversation. Um, I was happy to see you um, a couple weeks ago when I did at the Green. It's always good to catch up with you, and um, it's always good to talk to you. And we, we always have a good podcast, and I appreciate all that you do. But, uh, yeah, I'd uh, like you to let the listeners know how they can find you and also link it up in the show notes as well. Okay. You can always get hold of me um, just through my number, which is 801 792 9849 or find me on Instagram whether it's mine which is just Colby D. Crossland or the Spinnerfall one which is um, Spinner underscore Fall so we're, we're active on those accounts. I'm on Facebook but I'm not on there and active as much as I am on Instagram so that or, or just calling or texting is probably the best way. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge. And um, I, I got to get me some of those uh, rainy flies, those cold, <laughs> Colby Croslin flies. Yeah, and, go. I'm um, looking forward to find the, some clink copper. Clink copper, yeah. Because I clink copper. Clink hammer. The what? Oh, yeah, I was just saying the clink copper. Yeah, the clink copper. I fished the clink hammer, right? Yeah, that's what yep, it's called. Perfect. The. Um, it's more of a uh, like a big mayfly, and it hangs down in the water. I can't wait to fish the clink hopper. That's going to be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Especially since I know you tied it, because then I can give you feedback and be like, man, I got eight refusals on that sucker. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm trying to figure out how to design a clink beetle and a clink ant and do a whole series <laughs> of terrestrial clink flies. Uh, that's cool. That's really cool. All right, man. Well, um, God bless you, and I'll catch you later, and thanks for what you do, okay? Okay. Thank you much. Have a good one. All right, buddy. Take care. Right, Bye-bye.